Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 38 years we have presented voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and open to all, and we invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Church for upcoming events. Information can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. In 2018, David Hogg was a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. On February 14th last year, a lone gunman entered the school and killed 17 of his friends, classmates, and teachers with a high-powered military assault rifle. From that moment, he committed himself to becoming an agent of change, resolving that no other young person should have to experience the tragic impact of gun violence. He's among 20 Parkland students who founded Never Again MSD, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, a gun control advocacy group, and he is a founding member of March for Our Lives, one of the largest youth-led movements in the world. He and his younger sister, Lauren, are co-authors of the best-selling book, Hashtag Never Again, A New Generation Draws the Line. And they are both contributors to the book, Glimmer of Hope, How Tragedy Sparked a Movement, which is a compilation of writings from the founders of March for Our Lives. After graduating from high school in June 2018, David chose to take a gap year to travel the country, advocating voter participation, civic engagement, and social activism. This fall, he will be a member of the freshman class at Harvard University. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, David Hogg. Thank you. I want to start off by thanking the Westminster Town Hall Forum for having me today and for all of you amazing people, um, many of whom who agree with me, many of whom who don't agree with me, for being here to have this conversation. Because I think the one thing that we can all agree on is the most important thing that we can agree on. And that's the fact that gun violence in America should not continue in any community. Gun violence shouldn't be allowed to continue in our schools. Gun violence should be allowed to continue for the children that die from bullets coming outside of our schools either. Whether those bullets be coming from individuals that have nothing but hatred in their heart or individuals that are purely trying to, quite frankly, exterminate religious groups of people as we saw recently in New Zealand. And I want to take a moment of silence for the individuals whose lives were lost in New Zealand to remember them and reflect on all the individuals, many of whom I'm sure in this room know that have died as a result of gun violence. So let's take a moment of silence. Thank you. Oftentimes, I think to myself, what causes these acts? What causes individuals to have so much hatred in their heart, to go out there and want to commit atrocious acts like killing another human being. 
And one thing that I realized when I was going across the country this summer is previously I thought, you know, these individuals, they're just mentally ill. They're, 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 they're completely separate from individuals like myself or anybody else that's out there because they, they have a completely different mindset. But what I realized is that these individuals oftentimes, whether it be mass shootings or hate crimes, are not mentally ill because hate is not a mental illness. It's something that is bred within us, right? Hatred is bred within us through the one thing that we passively allow to continue, which is a lack of education and togetherness, right? right? Where we're able to tell ourselves again and again, oh, this issue doesn't affect me because of the zip code I live in. Well, I'm here to tell you this issue does affect you because if you live in any zip code in the United States of America, even if you haven't been affected by this issue, it can and it will affect you eventually. For anybody in this room that has lost somebody as a result of gun violence, I ask you to raise your hand, including suicide by gun. Thank you. I want everyone who raised their hand to know that your suffering is our suffering. Your fight is our fight. Be it a nonviolent one, but one through the political process, one through the electoral process, where we are fighting for a future where the validity of your suffering, the validity of gun violence is not determined by whether or not you die in a school or on the street in front of your household, right? Because we've allowed that to continue. We've allowed individuals, individual deaths of young people to be framed by the media because of the color of their skin or their zip code. As an example, one amazing young person that I met right before the march was Zion Kelly. Zion is a twin that lives in Washington, D.C., a couple miles from the Capitol. Zion had a brother named Zaire Kelly who one day was coming home from a college prep class simply to advance his family's future and make it a better and brighter future so that he could help his family in the future and help provide for them financially and help make them, to help promote his own education so he could understand as much as possible about the world. But sadly, on his way home from a college prep class, he was shot, as, he was shot and killed and mugged. But you know how his death was covered? As gang violence. Because of the zip code he lives in. Even though he was coming home as a result of him purely wanting to advance his dream of having a better and brighter future for his family and never been associated with a gang, his death was covered as gang violence. And to that I say shame. I say shame that we've allowed ourselves to live, that we allow ourselves to live in a country where, quite frankly, many of us in this room did not care about this issue until we started seeing individuals that look like ourselves be affected by it. Right? I say in, in in this current state of affairs in the United States of America, it's a, it is a shame, it is a national shame that we say that this country was settled. It was not. This country was colonized. This country was invaded. I say shame to the fact that we have had thousands of lynchings throughout American history happen across the United States, yet most often, in most history textbooks, we don't talk about it. And we ask ourselves, why? 
Why don't we hear about, for example, the first mass shooting in American history, in my opinion, which was the Battle of Wounded Knee, where the United States federal government went out and killed hundreds of Native American children, moms, dads, that were all unarmed simply for living on their land. Right? We don't talk about that because they're not white, because of the color of their skin, and the fact that they're indigenous people living on this land. We don't talk about the fact that the Second Amendment is not purpose-built to take down a tyrannical government. The Second Amendment is built to enable a white supremacist tyrannical government. Because truth be told, if the individuals that go out there and say again and again, we need guns to take down a tyrannical government, why don't they ever talk about demilitarizing the police? Interesting, right? It's because they don't fear a tyrannical government of their own. They fear a tyrannical government that doesn't look like powerful white men, right? And I'm here to say it's time to end white supremacy. It's time. It's time that as communities of color, as gay communities, as white communities, as straight communities, as Islamic communities, as Christian communities, as Hindu communities, and every other community in the United States, we acknowledge the fact that even though we have shared, we have different experiences because of the segregation that is bred within the foundation of this nation. We acknowledge each other's suffering and work in allyship, not against each other, but with each other, against the sources of evil and not the people perpetrating it. Because what I'm focused on is not how do I take your guns away, it's how do I stop children and young people and old people and people of every age, every race and ethnicity in the United States from dying as a result of preventable gun violence. I'm here to inform you that the NRA does not stand for everyday gun owners like my father and most of my family members. The NRA stands for gun manufacturers in the same way Big Tobacco stood for selling as many cigarettes as possible. And you may ask me, but David, how, how do you know this? Right? You know, you're just an 18-year-old that doesn't know anything. Well, there's this thing called reading. It's pretty great. Um, and one day, a couple of years before the shooting at my high school, I happened to be reading about the National Rifle Association in my speech and debate class because we were talking about universal background checks. And in speech and debate, in the program that I was involved in, we had to argue on both sides of the argument. So I had to develop a case that was equally against universal background checks and for universal background checks. So where was the first place that I went when I tried finding information um, against universal background checks? Right. <laughs> so I, I tried going there, but because I knew that was going to be covered as a biased source, I wanted to see what their talking points around the issue were, which are like, th this, this hurts law-abiding gun owners, and th this isn't going to help anyone, even though I thought, quite frankly, that was ridiculous, because if you're afraid of a background check, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun, period. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking up this information, right? and. I go to one of the most credible sources that I always go to to try to find information that's the hardest to argue against, the CDC. 
So I try going there and I try looking up the effectiveness of gun laws at the state level. You know, just to see unbiasedly how effective these laws are. But I thought, you know, that's weird. I can't find any like research into why gun laws are effective. So I looked it up. I'm like, why is there like a lack of CDC research in this? And it's like, oh, it's illegal. It's a crime. The NRA made it a crime to study the effectiveness of gun laws. Right? So then I thought to myself, you know, what are the protections for gun owners like my father? You know, because I'm worried for his own safety about the weapon that's being manufactured to make sure that it doesn't just inadvertently go off. So I'm like, well, I, at least I can argue that the NRA stood to make gun owners safer by making sure guns are like under like, I don't know, like the Consumer Protection Act. I looked at them like, guns under the Consumer Protection Act. Guess what? Toy guns are actually more regulated for safety in the United States than actual guns. <laughs> then I thought to myself, well, that's weird because the NRA says they stand for the protection of gun owners and making sure that they can't just inadvertently own a weapon that just randomly goes off and kills someone even if they don't pull the trigger, even though that's happened before. There have been instances where individuals have been cleaning their gun or have been hunting where the weapon inadvertently went off because it was shaken a certain way or something else happened as a result of the horrible ineffectiveness of this law because it doesn't exist where individuals have been charged with murder for killing their siblings or their friends because their weapon inadvertently went off, even though they never pulled the trigger. I thought to myself, you know, why? I'm sure the NRA wants gun manufacturers to be held accountable to support everyday gun owners, right? So I'm like, of course they can sue gun manufacturers. Let's see what these lawsuits look like. Oh, that's right. It's against the law to sue gun manufacturers. It's against federal law to sue gun manufacturers to hold them accountable because of a law that the NRA pushed for. I thought, you know, it really doesn't seem to me like they support gun owners. It seems like they're funded by gun manufacturers, similar to how cigarettes uh, just kept funding themselves and making sure that they're blocking as much research as possible while millions of Americans die as a, as a result. So I looked up, you know, what are the main funding streams for the NRA? And it turns out a lot of the main uh, contributions that they get come from gun manufacturers. They make commissions off of gun sales. They're the, chief, they're the chief marketing officer for every gun manufacturer in the United States is really what they are. I thought to myself, you know, how do they continue to do this and why do they always like politicize these issues like school shootings immediately after they happen and start talking about how liberals are coming to t come and take your guns? It's like, oh, it's because the same thing that drove hate, like the instance that we saw in New Zealand, is the same thing that drives gun sales, fear fear of individuals that we don't know, fear and a lack of education. And it turned out, after I looked it up, that the NRA actually benefits off of school shootings because their profits go up after school shootings because gun sales go up after school shootings. So if, if you can continuously go out there and say liberals are coming to take your guns, you better buy as many AR-15s and handguns as possible before they come and take them, even though that's not what they want to do at all, you can continuously make hundreds of millions of dollars off of the death of innocent everyday Americans. And that is not what freedom looks like to me. Because I, I know what freedom looks like is not how the NRA describes. Because their freedom is a freedom of white supremacy. And I don't want white supremacy to be free anymore in the United States.
Because we know that after every school shooting, I thought to myself, like, for example, when I was researching the NRA, what are their solutions? What is their solution to stop school shootings, right? Because, like, nobody wants this to continue. Okay, so they, they come up with this idea of hardening schools to criminalize black and brown youth more. And as an example of why that's the case, let's think about what they actually mean when they're talking about hardening schools, okay? Single point of entry, a metal detector, armed guards, armed teachers, a barbed wire fence around the school to make sure individuals can't hop a fence to come in and shoot the school. But you know what I just described to you? Prison. <laughs> because they know if they can continuously fear, fear monger within our youth, the idea that the only thing to make you safe from gun violence in America is another gun, they're always going to be able to sell you two guns. And that is not what freedom looks like to me. What freedom looks like to me is a nation of immigrants on stolen land that doesn't call other people illegal. What freedom looks like to me is for the high schoolers that are in the upper rows, you, you're, you're going to know what I'm talking about here, properly funded guidance counselors that aren't just paid schedulers, but are actual proper guidance counselors that help us figure out what we're going to do in the future, right? What freedom looks like to me is youth being able to go to school and not worry about being shot outside of their school or inside of it. What freedom looks like to me is political leaders that don't just continuously divide and conquer us as a nation and continue to segregate us while they benefit off of the division and the weakening of our country. What freedom looks like to me is political leaders that go not after each other, but against the sources of evil together from both political parties working against the sources of evil, whether it be Islamophobia, gun violence, or any other issue that we face as a nation, because let us as a nation have our only enemy be the sources of evil and not each other. There's a reason why March for Our Lives and the entire like, youth movement don't go out there and endorse candidates. And it's because we know that the second that we attach ourselves to any one individual candidate is the second that they get elected and continue to benefit off of this issue, right? Because we know that both political parties have been in power since Columbine, yet nothing has happened, right? It's time for that to change. It's time for us to elect leaders that believe in actually researching gun violence, no matter the, the political party. It's time for us to elect morally correct leaders that aren't Democrats or Republicans, that are, but are Americans that care about whether or not children are dying. It's time for us as a country to make our only enemy the hate and fear and the lack of education that continues to divide us. Because what I'm focused on as an activist and as an individual is not how to vote out our current president, who is a white nationalist, 
don't get it wrong. What I'm focused on is stopping the thing that creates him in the first place. What I'm focused on is how do we eradicate the lack of education? How do we eradicate the xenophobia, the Islamophobia? How do we eradicate the white supremacy and all the other horrible things that have allowed him to be there in the first place? Because I, as an American, know that this country has never succeeded by being driven by fear. This country has only ever succeeded by loving each other and fighting for a better and brighter future, not as Democrats and Republicans, but as human beings united against the sources of evil in the first place. So what I ask of you today, whether you be a young person that is just starting out your high school or middle school experience, and this is a big, wide world that you don't know whether or not there's going to be a future for us in the first place, right? Because it doesn't matter what new gun laws we have if the entire planet's underwater. It doesn't matter if, if, all, if we're doing all this work on these issues if we don't have a planet to live on in the first place, right? Because that's the issue that we're concerned about. We're concerned about whether or not we make it out of our schools. We're concerned about whether or not it's safe to go outside in the first place, right? And it's time for that to change. What I ask of you, no matter if you're the young person in the room or the oldest person in the room, or you're one person that doesn't look like the rest of the room, or you're one person that looks like, the re like all of the room, <laughs> is to work together and love each other, to conquer hate, to conquer fear. <laughs> to those of you that don't agree with me, okay. I respect that, and thank you for coming into the event. But what I ask you to do is simply don't get in debates about this issue and say we need to fund mental health care more, and then not call your congressman and say, what are you doing to fund mental health care, yeah. right? What I ask of you to do if you do agree with me in this room is not simply to say, yeah, we need new gun laws, but to actually call your congressman, call your representative and say, how are we going to get these new gun laws passed? How are we going to go out there and make sure that these laws that disarm domestic abusers and other individuals that never should have had a gun in the first place are being passed. And if they aren't actually doing that, what I ask of you is to vote them out and run for office. So lastly, what I ask of you as any individual from any political party or any zip code is to simply work together in allyship with each other and not against each other. Listen to each other and understand oftentimes in this fight against the sources of evil, when we're afraid, when we're scared, and we don't know what's going on, the best thing you can do is listen. Listen not to respond and get in another heated argument with your aunt or uncle, <laughs> but listen to learn their perspective and help provide your own with the understanding that it's okay that you aren't gonna agree on everything because guess what, in a democracy, nobody ever does. But that's why it's a democracy, because voting is where we should take our debates, right? So what I ask in the light of the recent events in New Zealand, in the light of the thousands of mass shootings that have happened in recent years in the United States and everyday shootings that have happened over recent years in the United States, is how do we work together against this issue? Because only getting in debates about this issue and not actually discussing how to end it is what 
has gotten me to this place today as a young person speaking about gun violence. Because we are the gun violence generation. And what we as a youth ask, what I as a youth ask, is not to lead in front, is not to lead behind, but to lead with you, no matter your age, no matter the color of your skin. Because in this fight, the only way that we're ever gonna be able to drive out of here and get out of this insane situation that we've gotten ourselves involved in down this weird back road that we call America is by steering together and working together to go down the right path against the sources of evil and not the people that are perpetrating it. Because only by attacking those individuals is what's gotten us here in the first place, and it's time for those things to end. It's time that as a generation, and as generations that are in the room, it's time that as people of different races and ethnicities that are in the room to come together and listen to each other's experiences and work together to make sure that no other generation has to live through these experiences ever again. Thank you. This is NPR News Presents. Thank you, David Hogg. You're listening to Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from a packed Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the Town Hall Forum. Our speaker today is activist David Hogg. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public, Public Radio News, Heard in the Twin Cities on 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. We invite you to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, April 9th at noon, when Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jonathan Capehart will offer a bold look at today's headlines. Visit our website, westminsterforum.org, for more information. And now, David Hogg, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. You mentioned in your remarks the challenge of meeting with those who disagree on uh, the need to end gun violence in the way you're advocating. Uh, have you had encounters with, uh, with NRA representatives or those who are against what you're working for? And tell us about that if you have. Um, yes. <laughs> I suspected that was the case. You suspected correctly. Um, uh, I'll, I'll go down a, uh, a short story to explain, explain one of my first encounters with these individuals up close and personal. Um, and I, I actually, um, I wrote one of my college essays about this and it's, it was titled, How to Talk to People That Want to Kill You. We are at an event in Dallas, Texas, a place that loves us dearly, as you can imagine. Um, And at this event, we were at, we were at a, um, I, th I think it might have been, um, I, I think it was from college, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but we, we were speaking at, uh, we were having a town hall, and I wasn't speaking there that day, but there were armed protesters outside of our event. About 30 armed protesters, 
armed with your typical assault style rifle, a handgun, knife, you know, like literally like handgun, handgun, knife, assault rifle across their front. Because Texas is an open carry state like many states. Um, and they're shouting uh, racial slurs at the, at the people coming into our event. They're shouting my name and saying, where's that hog boy? And like just insane stuff, calling us crisis actors and saying that we like, that we're not even real people. And you should have seen the look on their faces when I did, went out there and did what any sane person would do and went and spoke to these people. <laughs> when they first realized that I'm not some kind of paid actor, I'm a human being, that's an actual, at the time, well, yeah, I was an, sorry, years go by so, pa so fast now. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, um, that was an 18 year old that simply wanted kids not to die. And first question they asked to us is, you know, why do you want to take my guns away? And I, I always ask these individuals three questions. I say, you know, are you a domestic abuser? Because we know that one of the most common traits of a mass shooter before they go out there and kill someone else is a history of domestic abuse. Like the individual at my school who the FBI and law enforcement was called on dozens of times but couldn't do anything because they didn't have any law that could have taken his guns away in the first place. Right? So I ask him, are you a domestic abuser? He goes, no. I, I, I say, are you trying to kill yourself? He said, no. And I said, are you, are you a terrorist? He said, absolutely not. And I said, I'm not trying to take your guns away. And if I was, it would be through due process, an extreme risk protection order that helps like, disarm people that are risk themselves and others with the 72-hour waiting period, for example, where you have the right to go back to court with a right to counsel most of the time in most states and argue that you're not going to go out and commit an act of gun violence or argue that you're not going to go out there and kill yourself. Because we know that the odds of somebody dying in an instance of domestic violence, for example, when there's gun involved is 500% higher. Right? So those are the only individuals that I'm learning, I'm trying to take their guns away from. And after that, next question was like, you know, like, how do you know these laws are going to be like effective? How, like, how do you even know any of this? And like, throwing all this like, like fake research at me, um, that's literally done by a researcher named, um, I think his name's uh, John Lott. He, he runs an organization that's completely fake and a front called, uh, I think like it's called the crime research organization um, that's literally used to just say like oh like different countries have significantly more gun violence than the United States you don't know what you're talking about when in reality what they do is compare a country like the United States with um, as many gun deaths as we have and they skew the statistics to make it look like gun violence is a way bigger issue in other countries that have similar demographics to the United States even though that's not the case I said I asked him like do you know how much we fund how much money goes into gun violence research annually He's like, oh, billions of dollars. I'm like, actually, none. Because the organization that you choose to side with and stand with fought against funding gun violence research. I'm like, do you support funding gun violence research? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, OK. And then uh, further on um, throughout the conversation, it ended up culminating in them crying and hugging us. And the reason why that happened is because we didn't go out there and hate those individuals and yell at them. 
We went out there and spoke to them and had a discussion, not a debate with them about gun violence. With the understanding that even though I don't think that you need a weapon with an effective range of several hundred feet like the AR-15, because in my opinion, if you're shooting somebody from several hundred feet away, you're hunting people, period, right? And I, I think, first of all, in the United States, you should need a license to buy a gun, any gun. Because I think it is simply absurd that you need a license in most states to go fishing, but not to buy a gun. So, yeah. You referred to the New Zealand attack just three days ago on Friday. Uh, and I suspect that uh, stirred in you memories of what happened February last year in your school. Uh, how are you dealing with the emotional uh, trauma through which you went and you and your classmates, how, how, how are you uh, coping with the repeated uh, gun violence you're having to deal with as a, as a person who survived it? Um, quite frankly, my self-care routine is probably similar to a lot of people in this room. It's cooking and watching The Office. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, um, you know, what, what I always think about is, is the fact that as a white male going to a predominantly privileged school um, in the United States in a predominantly white community, I get significantly, significantly more coverage than some of my fellow peers who are of different races and ethnicities. And what I think about is some of the individuals that I met over the summer. One of them who's still that struck me so much uh, was a young woman that I met in East Oakland, California. She had lost, uh, we had a conversation at every place that we went to when we went on bus tour over the summer. And, and one of the, the last place that we went to on our second leg of our bus tour, which was three legs, was East Oakland, California. And I was speaking to this young woman, speaking about the gun violence that we've faced um, in her, that she's faced in her community and me simply just listening because I don't know what goes on in East Oakland as a student from Parkland in the same way she doesn't know what goes on in Parkland as someone that's not from there. But simply listening to each other and she goes on this 15 minute story of her entire past five years of her life about how she'd lost 20 friends to gun violence in the past five years as an 18 year old and how she'd been homeless for the past year as well. And how I realized in that, in that moment, just like many others, the privilege that I've been given. Because, because she didn't live through a school shooting, because she lived through 20 individual shootings, it's seen as different from the media, but it's not. It's not. If there's a, it should not be covered any different. If there's one shooting that kills 100 people, or 100 individual shootings over a weekend in one city. Because the suffering is the same. The loss is the same. What's not is how we tell their story, though. Because the color of their skin, and that has to change. We have to acknowledge. <laughs> we have to acknowledge the racism within the media, and especially for the white people in the room, use our privilege to acknowledge it in the first place, as allies. We have, to, we have to acknowledge it and call it out at every corner that we can. Because in the communities that I've gone to, 
everyone's trying to tell their story and make their voice heard, but because people like us oftentimes don't see that in the media, we don't even know what's going on there in the first place. And it's a damn shame that it took, quite frankly, white kids being killed for most of America to start killing, caring about gun violence, right? Shame. And what I'm not going to forget in this conversation and this movement that we've created with students from around the country, from every zip code and every community, is the voices that are purpose-built to be left out of the conversation that we are not going to leave out. The people that we are not going to speak for, the people that we are going to raise the, ba the, raise the voices of using our platform, because we know they've been speaking for years about the violence in their community. We know that communities don't do activism or organizing because it's cool and it's cute and it's good for Twitter. Communities organize for their survival. If you see massive groups of people going out there and protesting and organizing in their community, there is a serious issue going on there. There is serious corruption going on there. And it's our duty as people from all different backgrounds to work with those people within our community and raise, not now Siri, um, and raise their voices and make sure that we acknowledge them in the first place and we acknowledge that we're not going to accept suffering of any form in any zip code, no matter who it affects. Because as Americans and as human beings that live in the United States, we are not going to allow this, this issue to continue any longer. The shooting at your high school happened now uh, 13 months ago. What kinds of changes have you seen in the nation since then? Any? Raise your hand if you voted. Yeah, we've seen a lot of change. Um, I, I'm definitely going to forget some of the biggest changes, like some, some of the changes that we've made just because there's so many of them because of all the amazing people like, and groups like Moms Demand and Giffords and other groups out there. Um, and groups that work especially in different communities uh, that aren't talked about oftentimes. Um, like an amazing woman that I met on our uh, bus tour named Erica Ford, who I now call um, a close friend of mine who's been working in gun violence prevention in Jamaica, Queens for the past 20 years, basically. And she worked in her community to create a violence intervention program that works through mentoring at-risk youth by using adults that were at-risk youth and then ended up going to prison to use restorative justice to help mentor students in stop shootings as they're happening, where individuals go out there Young people, older people, and individuals go out there, not with a badge or a gun or a bulletproof vest, but as individuals that care about their community, and go out there and stop shootings as they're happening. And in the, one of the communities, in one of the first communities that they started in, in Jamaica, Queens. In 2000, and the years before, there was an average of pretty much 17 murders a year there. Same number of people that were killed at my high school, but it didn't get covered the same, right? because it's a predominantly black community, predominantly uh, Latinx community as well. And in the past, since they started in 2001, in that community, they have, they have had one murder. And you know how they got there? It wasn't by over-policing their youth. It wasn't by criminalizing people for the color of their skin. It wasn't stop and frisk, for sure. It was them treating violence as a disease and asking the real question here that we all should be asking, which is why do individuals feel the need to arm themselves in the first place? 
Why do individuals feel the fear that they have? Why do young men in America have this constant fear that's surrounded around toxic masculinity? Right? Where young men are raised in a society where they're taught. I was taught as a young man in America that it's not okay to feel any other emotion than angry because of the figures that I saw in the media. I was taught that it's not okay for me to act any other way than violent because of the figures that we see in the media and the representation that men see in the media because of how we're portrayed constantly. And that fosters a culture of violence within our youth and especially within young men where they're taught that it's not okay to feel emotions because you're a man and you're supposed to tough it out which culminates in the fact that suicides have grown significantly over the past couple of years. And the fact that the majority of people that die as a result of guns and gun deaths in the United States are suicides in predominantly suburban and rural communities that are disproportionately white men that don't feel comfortable enough to talk about their mental health, that don't feel comfortable enough to go out there and speak to their friends about how they're actually feeling. And it's time for that to change because what we have to acknowledge is the fact that after every mass shooting, when it's a white shooter, what is it? They're mentally ill. Stigmatizing mental health is not going to solve this problem. A question for one of the students in the room. Do you think that older generations ever use the youth as some kind of scapegoat for their own failures to make change yes. in our society? Yes, yes, but let it be known, let it be known that it is not too late. It is not too late. Would I, raise your hand if you think the youth of America are going to save this country. You're wrong. You're so wrong. It's not going to be the youth of America that save this country. It's going to be every generation working together that will save this country. Because as youth, we are not asking to lead in front. We are asking to lead with you. We know that you have experience and wisdom that we need to be successful in the future so that we don't repeat the same mistakes, right? But what we also need to acknowledge is that the young people also need to be listened to. We, it needs to be seen. When young people are talking about school shootings or gun violence, they're not complaining and they're not just an entitled generation because they wanna have a planet when they grow up. They wanna be heard. We want to be heard, right guys? Um, so let's work together of all different people from all different generations against the sources of evil. Because only raising youth voter turnout, which we've done, which is one of the other accomplishments that we've had, um, is going to change things. But we need everybody to raise their, youth, their turnout. We need everybody to go out there and vote from all different communities and run for their community and represent their community and care about their community. Because the reason why corporations are represented in Congress right now and the people are not is because we've been told that, oh, voting's not that important through a propaganda campaign, right? It's a massive propaganda campaign. The fact that as a youth in America, I didn't learn what an absentee ballot was in my civics class. It's almost like there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason why we're not taught about the importance, the true importance of civic engagement. There's a reason why the youth are not taught about the fact that Alexander Hamilton 
was in a very similar situation to what hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans currently are in, where he was fleeing a hurricane too and coming to the United States. He was 17 years old when he came here. John Lewis was 17 years old when he wrote to Dr. King and asked, how can I get involved? And you know what he did? He did a lot. But one of the most important things that he did is he went out there and started creating the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that trained hundreds of thousands of youth activists across the country, old activists across the country, and people of all different races across the country. Because one thing that struck me when we were in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is where the first sit-ins took place to protest segregation, there's a museum around where they did the first sit-ins. And they have a wall of the mugshots of many of the people that were arrested there. But what struck me about those mugshots is that they were people of all different backgrounds. If you look at those mugshots, it's not just it's not just black people, it's white people, it's Asian people, it's Latino people, it's gay people, it's straight people, it's people of all different ages. I think I saw like an 80-year-old on there protesting against it, right? So we can work together in allyship while leading against our, our, ser our shared sources of suffering and evil. By working together against that, we can end it by working together from every generation. So what I ask um, any of the politicians that are in the room, if there are any, um, if you're in here or any other, even just older people in general, when you see youth raising up and being active, after oftentimes we often hear like, oh, young people are too lazy to be politically involved, right? Then once they get politically involved, what is it? It's always like, oh, they're too young to know what they're talking about. <laughs> Saying we are too young to know what we're talking about is not an excuse for the youth to become politically inactive. That is an excuse to fund our civics education. That is an excuse. That's a great reason why we should lower the voting age to 16. Because the reason why youth aren't politically involved is because we aren't represented, right? We don't feel cared about because we're not. Why would I turn out and vote for somebody that doesn't care about anybody of my age, doesn't care about the fact that we have higher rates of anxiety and depression of any other generation that came before us, and a higher rate of student loan debt of any generation that's come before us too? When I, when I look at the presidential candidates, and I see them like, oh, we're going to talk about an assault weapons ban and gun violence, right? That is not a solution. Talking is what's gotten us here in the first place. What I ask of them is, where is your plan? Where is your plan? Where is your plan to, over the next 10 years, reduce gun violence in the United States, not just in white zip codes, but in every zip code, by 90%? Because it can happen. And what would some of the elements of such a plan be? What would some, some of the elements of a plan be from your perspective? First of all, funding gun violence research. We, we need a peace plan. We need a, a plan for peace in this country. We need a plan that tackles white nationalism and white terrorism, because it's on the rise. And we need to be talking about it. 
We need a plan that in the same way the Sunrise Movement has acknowledged the disastrous effects of climate change and created the Green New Deal, we need a peace plan. We need our politicians to go out there and we need our youth to go out there and force our politicians to care about the fact that we don't know whether or not we're gonna make it home or out of our classroom that day as a result of gun violence. We need politicians that go out there and come up with a plan that funds gun violence research, puts guns under the Consumer Protection Act, and creates a gun licensing system in the United States and funds violence intervention programs that don't overcriminalize black and brown youth. It's a plan. <laughs> because we have to realize that this isn't just about new laws. This is about accountability as well. We need the, the sheriffs that are going out there and saying this is a Second Amendment sanctuary and we're not going to disarm domestic abusers here because they want to get reelected to know that that's not okay. Because no domestic abuser in the United States should be armed. No white nationalist or white terrorist in the United States should be armed. You're talking a lot about voting. You encourage people here to vote people out of office and run for office. There's quite a number of questions running forward as asking, uh, when are you gonna run for office? <laughs> and and I, I wanna kinda tag onto that because that's about your future and it's about our future together. Are you hopeful? Are you a hopeful person in, in America in 2019? Yes, I am. Good. And what drives that hope? Um, so on the topic of running for office, I hope it doesn't get to that point. I really hope it doesn't. I sincerely hope that Congress can act right now to stop the 40,000 gun deaths that are happening in the United States. Because what it shouldn't take in the United States to create change is massive protests. What it shouldn't take in the United States is people going out and doing massive protests to get something as simple as universal background checks passed. Universal background checks literally pull higher than puppies in the United States. But they haven't been passed. We need, what it shouldn't take in the United States is a massive uprising to get anything done in Congress or our state legislatures. It should take politicians that are morally just leaders that care about us to get those things done. So, on the topic of running for office, honestly, I hope it doesn't get to that point, but if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. Thank you, David Hogg. <laughs>